Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello across the way, uh, Auditorium One. You guys look stellar, stellar per usual. Um, if you are here and you are visiting with us, we're so, so glad to have you. Please stop by our Welcome Center, like we mentioned, in the Commons over near Auditorium One. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship and Fellowship Family, if you need specifics on getting more involved, pretty please stop by Next Steps in the Commons, also near Auditorium one, in Auditorium 2, you guys are extra special because we have a table in the back that can answer every single question you've ever had in your whole life after service back there if you need to uh, go bother our friends there later. And the best place to understand what we're all about here and to get most of your questions answered is a class called Starting Point. When's the next one, Jim? Thanks for asking. Next Sunday, March 10th at 10.30 will be our next Starting Point class. It's a 90-minute introduction to what we believe that Jesus is up to in and through our church, and we would absolutely love to have you. Not only will you get all your questions answered, not only will you meet beautiful, wonderful, lovely people, you also get free lunch and have to avoid traffic, so I'm sorry for that burden. So this is what you need to do. There's an amen, thank you, brother. Uh, so here's what you need to do. You can sign up for that online, or the QR code in front of you on the chair back. You can click that guy, and we would love to have you next Sunday morning, March 10th, for starting point class. Now, as many of you know, like we just mentioned, on Sunday mornings, we are in a series called Royalty on the Life of King David from First and Second Samuel. And Charlie mentioned it a few weeks back, but outside of God himself, David is mentioned more than any other person in the whole Bible. And in his life, we have both Israel's greatest king, and we also have some of the greatest individual failures in the whole Bible. So David's story covers the gamut, but we believe that in these things, God is seeking to teach us something, especially because David's life points us to the life and death of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so there are dozens of ways in which David's life is instructive to us. And today, we believe that the Holy Spirit will continue to teach us and change us through Holy Scripture. And if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, our text for today will be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and get there, that would be good, great, wonderful, awesome. Thank you. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll get there in a few minutes, I promise. Now, the last week of June 2012, I was getting ready to start my second tour of duty here on staff at church. I was on our student minister staff way back in the day, 06, 07, with my friend and yours, Jason Malone, and my friend and yours, Josh Amos. But late June 2012, I was in my office unpacking my books and gearing up for round two of being on church staff. And about halfway through shelving my books, uh, also my friend and yours, uh, Art Ringer, we, we call him the right reverend apostle, Dr. Bishop Art Ringer here. We call him Fellowship Gandalf. Art Ringer stepped in my office. His office was like two doors down at the time. So he just popped by to see if I was getting uh, settled in okay. And at that time, our wives were working together. And so we, we talked about that and, uh, for a little bit. And, and one of my favorite things about Art Ringer is that he actually knows, understand, and cares deeply about college basketball. So even though it was June, we probably talked about college basketball for a little bit. Go Gamecocks. So we're sitting there in my office, small talking, myself and, and Laverne Arthur Ringer. Um, and after a few minutes of small talk, he sat back in his chair and he took a deep breath and he lowered his voice and he said, man, I am so, so sorry to, to hear about your friend. That is so sad. 
Now, the friend that he was referring to was a a pastor friend of mine who worked at another church, and he didn't just work at another church, but the job description, and I was getting ready to start here at Fellowship, that was basically his job at the church where he was on staff. And I had been talking to him and seeking his wisdom and picking his brain about it all because he was married and had a couple kids and was a few years older than me. So I thought it would be prudent to glean some wisdom from somebody a little bit ahead of me in a, in a similar vein of pastoral ministry. However, a week or so before Art was sitting in my office, it had come out that my friend um, had, had an affair uh, with a woman at his church. And somehow Art had gotten wind of it and thus his consoling words, hey man, really sorry to hear about your friend. And so when he said this, <clears throat> I paused for a second with a few books in my hand and I sat down in the chair beside him, the other chair in my office, and just sighed and was quiet for a minute. And then he asked me a question that if he knew my full story at the time, he would have known how truly weighty and pointed the question was. What he didn't know at the time was that in my first year of ministry classes in college, I had a student ministry professor who cheated on his wife. And then I was like, you know what? I think God's calling me to ministry, so I'm gonna go down and be a student ministry intern at this little Baptist church in deep south Georgia. And when I got down there, the main pastor soon got entangled in an affair. And then I come back to college for semester, and the most respected Greek and New Testament scholar, a professor at my undergrad, uh, also ended up in an affair shortly. And in a haunting and fear of God-inducing way, that was a part of my education. But Art didn't know about all that at the time. He just knew about my pastor friend. And knowing about that, Art dropped the following question. He said, hey man, how are you not gonna do that? Day one. How are you not gonna make the same mistake as your friend? You guys ever had a moment in your life where you felt like your, your, your life was this TV show and you didn't have the remote and then somebody hit pause and you're like, right? A moment that just kind of stopped because of the absolute power of the moment. Sometimes we have those moments and we see them hindsight, like in the rear view, we're like, oh, no, this is in the moment. I knew that this was, time kind of stood still for a second. And we had a great conversation about his particular question, which I remember in great detail. But after he left my office, I was just there with my books, and it actually, I think it it led me to harder questions, because I remember thinking, oh God, what about my friend? Like, what is, what's it gonna be for him now? Like, how's he gonna keep doing marriage and parenting and faith? Like, I, I just saw this guy's wisdom. Six weeks ago, I'm asking him, like, hey, hey, tell me. Does that mean that everything he said to me, which was some good stuff, does that mean that it's all a lie, that it's all wrong? Like, can there be restored integrity for him? And what in the world, God, I have no idea. Like, what's his relationship with God gonna look like now with you? And to protect us all from self-righteousness and to serve up maybe the fattest slice of humble pie. We all know the most annoying teaching of Jesus, right? We all know it that anyone who looks at somebody with lust in your heart has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. And anybody who looks at somebody with hate in their heart is basically the same as murder 
in your heart. So to put us all on the same playing field in a very, very real way, we're not more evolved than my pastor friend who messed up. And so on a fragile and actual level, we have to approach the same kinds of questions that he did. Like when we mess up, when we sin, when we do things our own way for the sake of our own puny little kingdoms and it backfires, what do we gotta do to get back on track? How do we move forward in things like our marriage or in parenting or in faith or, or in our relationships or at work? How do we get back into routines of faithfulness and obedience? Like what should rebuilt integrity look like? And I'm not saying this because I'm like, well, you know, in a room this size or at a church this big, I'm saying this because I know you. I know that there are people for whom this conversation hits way too close to home. And I'm not saying it's easy, but continued conversations like this have to be had. And there are absolutely differences between actual adultery and adultery of the heart, quote unquote. And there are natural consequences for these things that can unravel people's entire lives, that can unravel families. King King David's uh, life is a stark example of this and it's devastating. But what I'm saying is we don't rightly answer Art's question to me by thinking, well, I'm over here and I'm holy and righteous and pure. And my pastor friend, he is over there and he's just devious and dark and hard-hearted. We, we don't respond rightly to these things with us versus them thinking because like a sin management and comparison chart has never set anybody free. Rather, we all, every day of your life, of my life, we all come before God needy and broken all the time. And that's one of my favorite descriptions of our faith is that it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so here's the question that we're going to broach today. What does it look like to obey after you've disobeyed? I wish I could describe how important this was for your entire Christian walk. What does it look like to obey after you've disobeyed? And yes, hey, yes, the content of the disobedience might be a little different. But we still have to think about what ongoing faithfulness looks like after we botch it, after we fall short. Listen, please get it. In God's hands, we believe that we are not defined by the worst thing that we've ever done. Amen, we all say. But then you gotta go, well, what does that actually look like in the practical? Like when we mess up, how do we get back on track? Simply asked, what does it look like to obey after you've disobeyed? And thankfully, we're not in the dark. Holy Scripture will help us out with this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's gonna help us get an answer to our question And uh, buckle up, because I'm going to read the whole chapter straight through, all 27 verses, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 27. That's our passage. And I think it's really healthy to confess our gratitude for God's word all the time, even the heavier parts. So after I read, I'll say my line, which is, this is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line out loud. Thanks be to God, you too, auditorium one. Here we go, 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ravah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent 
and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people are doing, how the war is going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet and take a bath. Sheba. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his own house. When they told David, hey man, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, okay, okay, remain here also today and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank and he got drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the valiant men were. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Yerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent, to him, uh, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, but then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. And David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him, Joab. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over him, her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, 
This series is not just called Royalty because we're looking at old King David. It's also called Royalty because on the very first page of the Bible, we're called to be God's image bearers, to have dominion, to reflect and participate in his loving reign somehow. So I'm, I know it might not feel like it, but this whole conversation about obedience is about how we function in God's kingdom, in God's world that he is making new. Obedience is a kind of like engine for the kingdom of God. And not blind obedience, true obedience is born out of faith, and that, that's what we're talking about here. And the question that's on the table for us is, what does it look like to obey after you've disobeyed? And here's what I don't wanna do. I don't wanna rush to just some abstract principles to answer that question. Rather, I want us to wade a little more gradually into this story, and in doing so, I believe that the contours of obedience and disobedience will be more clearly seen if we patiently go through this story once again. I think we'll have a fuller vision of, of an answer to our question. So let's do a slower read-through of this with obedience now as our interpretive key. Let's just go ahead and hit one again. Verse one, look at verse one. In the spring of year, when kings go to battle, last line of verse one, David stayed in Jerusalem. So the end of verse one, our guy's already disobeying. End of verse one, already disobedience. In fact, in the ancient world, they would stop war for winter because it usually it was too cold and too rainy and too windy. And then in the spring, they'd be like, y'all ready to fight again? That's what they would do. That's just how it went. And that's what's happening here. And if we're reading David's story rightly, he's been growing in grace like we've talked about for the past couple of weeks. A lot more military victories, a lot more justice and peace for the people. Like he's growing in who he is and who God's called him to be and what God's called him to do. So look, I don't think it's wrong to read verse one with that kind of momentum that we've been talking about. And if verse one is about disobedience and the momentum is all about grace, then guess what that means? It means that disobedience always presumes on grace. Disobedience always presumes on grace. How do I know that? This is what David thought. Dude, they don't need me out of war. You know why? I'm on a winning streak, baby. They don't need me. I'm good. I'm unstoppable. Have you read the last five chapters? You can't touch this, right? So I'm just gonna stay in Jerusalem. I'm just gonna stay here. It's okay. It's fine. Well, I mean, yes, it's, it's all God, of course. Praise the Lord, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they don't need me. I'm gonna stay here. And friends, I will tell you right now, when you think you are entitled to grace, you're not thinking about grace anymore. That's something different. Presumption kills obedience. So what does David do with all his newly found free time? Well, <clears throat> he takes a walk on his massive palace roof porch out there, the center of the city, and he sees a woman bathing. And the original language of verse two, it says that she was pleasing to the eyes, pleasing to the eyes. Now go all the way down to verse 27 in your chapter. Look at verse 27. Last line of the whole chapter, verse 27. It says, the thing displeased Yahweh. And the Hebrew of that last line is that it was not pleasing in the eyes of Yahweh. And so this whole episode begins and ends the same way with what is pleasing to the eyes. And what I'm telling you is that, you know what that means? That God is not in this. In fact, you ready for this? Go ahead and read the rest of 1-2 Samuel. You know what you'll find? God everywhere. The only time God is mentioned in this whole chapter is the last word of the whole chapter. And this means that true obedience is when God is your primary reference point and standard. That is true, true north obedience. 
And that also means that disobedience is when you start to dilute God's standards and desires with your own standards and desires. That is what is slowly happening here like a patient leaky faucet. So what does David do? Verse four, he tells his servants to bring her to him and then he sleeps with her and then she gets pregnant. And here's where I wanna pause just for a second. Um, If you're looking at verses two through five in your Bible, which we just covered, you know that there's a lot of details that are left out. Some of them you're like, how in the world did it happen? Some of it is probably good that we don't have it. But I tell you this right now, in and around and through and above all those details, just for a second, um, if you have ever found yourself in Bathsheba's place, like if you have ever felt forced or coerced or preyed upon into sexual behavior, please hear me clearly. It is not okay. It is sin. It is evil. Even if you're telling yourself a different story. It is not God's design. It is evil. And if that's your experience, my heart aches and breaks for you. Seriously, brother or sister, if that's been part of your story, I'm so, so sorry. And if that's something that you need to process and work through continually, um, we have incredible godly staff that can talk to you. We have a partnership with incredible godly licensed therapists in the area we'd love to connect you with. And I know, that, I know that we don't have a lot of details about the thing in verses two through five, but some of you, when you read verses two through five, that's the only thing that you can think about because it is a part of your story. And so if that's the case, we'd love to, to help, you, help you out there. But for David here, what we need to do is we need to start to recognize a progression. David, remember, he saw something that was good to the eyes and he took it. That's a slight progression. And guess what that is? That's Adam and Eve. That's in Genesis. They saw that the fruit was good to the eyes and they took it from the tree, both falling from royalty. But there's another progression here. And here's how I know there's a progression. Because none of us thinks anything bad about verse one if we just have verse one. Dude, so what? He stayed in Jerusalem. Chill out, Thompson. <laughs> you just stay. He's war, Jerusalem. You just stayed in Jerusalem. No big deal, no big sin. <laughs> but that's the snowball at the top of the hill. Because you know what happens next? Then he looks at her in lust. And we aren't told but maybe he ends up like doing this triangulated deception with his servants. Like, what does he say to the servants to go get her? I don't know. We're not told. But perhaps there's triangulated deception there and why he needs Bathsheba to be brought to him. And then he sleeps with her and now it's way more than a snowball and it's gaining speed. And we know he's getting ready to have her husband executed. And by the time that happens, it is an absolute avalanche. And here's the scary point. Disobedience in the small things leads to disobedience in the big things. That's what's happening right here, right before our eyes. You might not think it's not that big of a deal, but disobedience in the small things leads to disobedience in the big things. Here's the deal. He could have seen her naked, taking a little walk on his his roof palace uh, overlook thing there. He could have seen her naked, lusted, gone inside and went, Mephibosheth, bro, sit down. We got to talk, dude. I need to confess some sin to you, man. I got to. He could have done that. That would have not been hard. He could have done that. But he didn't. He could have done that. You know why? Because things like confession and repentance stop it from becoming an avalanche. But alas, David did not. And I tell you right now, if you do not stop disobedience, you feed it. Hear it, brothers and sisters. If you don't stop that thing, you feed the monster. And I mean, I think it was probably the same way with my friend. Like he didn't wake up one morning and go, today I'm gonna commit adultery. That didn't happen. 
Maybe it started with a few too many texts or a few too many extended conversations or a few too many hugs or a few too many errands to drop something off at her house. I don't know. And I know we're not called to live out of shame and fear, but you better live out of wisdom. And so we have, we have, to, we have to do this. We have to ask. We gotta do some introspection here. We gotta ask, okay, Lord, what small pocket of disobedience in my life right now am I ignoring because it doesn't look like it's that big of a deal? What is it for you? Dude, you better know because that stuff grows. And you might be thinking, dude, he just stayed in Jerusalem. There's nothing. But is there, Lord, is there, Lord, please, is there any snowball-sized sin in my heart right now that I'm ignoring because that's it. It's just a snowball. It's not gonna hurt anybody. It's not gonna hurt anything. Just take a second. Rummage in your soul for a second. Holy Spirit, show us those things so that we can confess them. But again, David doesn't confess. Instead, what does he do? You get two, two options at this juncture. Fork in the road. You get two options. Confess or cover it up. David covers it up, and his version of fig leaves is ugly, big-time ugly. He sends a messenger to Joab, the army commander, and he tells him to send Uriah home, send Bathsheba's husband home. And obviously, the logic here is what guy coming home from war doesn't want to go see his wife and sleep with his wife? And then when she has a baby, David can be like, hey, way to go, baby's early. Like That's, that's the plan. David can do that. But his plan mega backfires, and Uriah, oh, man, he sleeps on David's front porch right outside the palace instead of go home to, go home to his own house and, and his own wife. And when David asks him about it, listen to Uriah's response. Listen, feel it. Dude, this is so... The deep and painful irony of this response is unbelievable. So David's asking Uriah, bro, why didn't you go home last night? <clears throat> verse 11. Look at what Uriah says. Verse 11, look. Uriah said to David... The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I hit you with the Jim Thompson annotated version. It goes like this. King David, sir, with all due respect, sir, I obey all my commands as they are originally given, sir, even down to and especially concerning obedience in all the small things. Dude, you have to feel the absolute sting and irony of this. Dude, aside from the fact that Uriah, look, Uriah the Hittite, he's a Hittite. He's not even from, descended from Father Abraham. He's a Gentile no-name. And here, he is being more faithful and more obedient than King David, the guy whose name is mentioned more than anybody else in the whole Bible. And so you know what David thinks? He doesn't say it, but this is what he thinks. He goes, all right, you want to go, little man? We're going to see how noble you are when you're absolutely hammered drunk. And so the next day, David goes, hey, man, come on to supper, buddy, and keeps shoving him glasses of wine, and he gets Uriah drunk, and Uriah is still noble while he's drunk, and he doesn't go down <clears throat> to his own house. And shockingly and unbelievably, this leads David to confess, cover it up. It leads David to a murder plot. Why? Because disobedience justifies the unthinkable. Disobedience normalizes extremity. It accommodates evil. 
That's what disobedience does. So David sends Uriah back to Joab and to war. And David sends a letter with him that guarantees his own death. So there goes Uriah, scroll in hand, letter from the king. And guess what? It is instructions for his own execution. And the instructions are to put Uriah at the front of the hardest fighting and then back away so he'll die. And sure enough, Joab sends messengers to David and they say to him, look at the end of verse 24, last line in verse 24. They say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. In fact, it's also the last line in verse 21. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And when something's repeated in the Bible, we should pay attention to it. Get this, the narrator doesn't call Uriah David's servant because after all, he's the king and every single little minion warrior person is actually his servant. No, 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 no. This is satire and painful sarcasm and irony because in a dark and twisted way, Uriah was a servant to David's sinister plans. And he weirdly and kind of in a fleeting way is more like Christ. He's the innocent and obedient one who was led away to death. And the absolute biting paradox and satirical sting of this should, should haunt you big time. In her excellent commentary on 1 and 2 Samuel, Joyce Baldwin says the following, that David's scheme to cover himself and not get noticed ironically becomes one of the best known incidents in all of scripture. And again, for us, this is one of the strongest narrative pictures of what obedience should and shouldn't look like. And if this whole thing is about royalty, and if we are made to be God's image bearers, we shouldn't see and take what we want for our own purposes and our own kingdoms. Rather, we should patiently, patiently trust and obey God's wise and good standards. And one of the main ways that you learn to obey after you disobey is by understanding the true essence and the contours of what real obedience and real disobedience are. And that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been seeing in this episode right here with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. See, noticing the contours of true disobedience and obedience. And that helps us answer our question. But there is one final way to think about our big question. How do you obey after you disobey? And it actually comes in 2 Samuel chapter 12, right there, the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. The narrator right here wants you to think about King Saul. When he made a big mistake, it goes a little something like this. Just like King Saul had prophet Samuel to call him out on his business after his downfall, so King David has prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David in chapter 12 and says, Dave, sit down, be quiet, I gotta tell you a story. It goes a little something like this. Look up here, don't read it. <clears throat> Here's my paraphrase because it's fun. David, there was a small town on the interstate and on one side of the interstate, there was a guy who owned tons of land and cattle and sheep and servants and hotels and horses and et cetera, et cetera. And he had everything that anybody in that small town could ever want. And his name was Mr. Big Deal. And on the other side of the interstate, there lived a poor man in a trailer who didn't have much to call his own at all, but he had the sweetest, cutest little lamb that kept him company. And it was so cuddly and it would snuggle in his bed with him every night. And nobody even really knew this guy's name. And David, one day a traveler pulled off the interstate and stopped at one of the hotels owned by Mr. Big Deal. And the traveler asked if he could have some lamb stew for supper. And Mr. Big Deal said, absolutely, give me two hours. And Mr. Big Deal marched right across the interstate 
and snatched the lamb from the poor man's arms and went and made lamb stew for the traveler. And when Nathan finishes this story, David loses his mind. Look at chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Stop. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think anger greatly kindled. It's probably like, oh, darn, that's not it. So David is yelling and cussing in Hebrew. Like, who does this guy think he is? What an absolute jerk. Where does he get off? How dare he? Somebody needs to put a spear through that guy right now. He deserves to die. That's what it says. Look, it's what it says. David's yelling, losing his mind. Where does this guy get off? Anger greatly kindled. And then after a few minutes, David's anger starts to slightly wane and he sits back down and Nathan puts his hand on David's shoulder and looks directly into his eyes and says quietly, David, David, you are that man. I tell you the truth that anybody who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Now, yes, Nathan goes on to talk to David about the repercussions and the consequences for his sin. And we'll mention some of that in the coming weeks. But prophet Nathan also does something here that actually kind of bothers me a little bit. I want you to see it for yourself. You can go read the rest of the stuff later, but look down in chapter 12, verse 13. Look at verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Pause. Again, the narrator wants us to think back to Saul. When prophet Samuel came to King Saul when he messed it up, messed up big time in 1 Samuel 15. You remember what Saul says? Anybody remember what Saul says? He goes, oh, oh, yeah, uh, the people made me do it. It was their fault. They did it. He does the blame thing. And so on one level, we, David's different. He is different. He actually kind of owns it. He says, I have sinned against Yahweh. And here's the thing that Nathan does that actually kind of bothers me. Look at the last half of verse 13. Look, Nathan goes, you're forgiven. Wait, what? Nate, hey, Nathan, <laughs> excuse me, sir. You got a permit for that? Like forgiven, forgiven? How, how, Nathan, you just can't go pronouncing absolution just like that. Like who gives you the right, Nathan, to be like, yes, God has put away your sin. You are forgiven, forgiven. What the, how, Nathan, how? Because you, you want it too. I want David to pay. You want it to, I want him to pay. Nathan knows and he remembers something that David has all but forgotten. The grace that David presumed upon throughout all of chapter 11, Nathan has not forgotten. Back in chapter seven, Yahweh made unbreakable covenant promises to David. God unconditionally committed himself to David and to David's family. And that's all about grace. And how do I know that it's all about grace? Because about an hour or two after this conversation with Nathan, David goes away and he opens up his prayer journal and he begins to weep and he starts to write and pray. And that prayer that he sat down to write became a song and we call it Psalm 51. And it starts like this. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. Have compassion on me according to your steadfast love. That's how I know it's all about grace. And this is the 
ultimate way that we learn to obey after we've disobeyed. We have to call to mind every day that the rock solid foundation of our relationship with God is not our performance, but his unfailing love and grace. That is rock solid foundation of it. It is grace and not our track record that is ground zero before God. In fact, hey, in God's family, your achievements and your accolades and your trophies and your good deeds aren't the most significant thing about you. And conversely, in God's family, your absolute worst failures and sins and wrongdoings aren't the things that define you the most. Rather, you are a part of his family by grace and will be sustained by grace if you're trusting him alone for real and eternal life. And the fact that you are his is the most important and the truest thing about you. And when we remember this grace, it's not just that past disobedience is wiped clean. This grace is also meant to empower future obedience and future faithfulness. And dude, I love this so, so much. Anybody know the first line in the entire New Testament? It goes a little something like this. This is a story about Jesus, the son of David. That's the first line in the entire New Testament because Jesus is the final fulfillment of everything that God promised to David in spite of David. Jesus is all of God's mercy and forgiveness with skin on, who has come from heaven to earth to pour out endless grace for those who are thirsty. And oh man, I love how the apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter two. He says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Meaning Jesus perfectly obeyed his father, even though it cost him his life. He was willingly buried under the avalanche of sin and death that we let leak into God's good world. And in that very act of obedience at the cross, he took all of our disobedience into himself. He took actual adultery and adultery of the heart. He took actual murder and murder of the heart. He took your lying and your gossip and your presumption. He took your, your greed and your lust and your anger. He took your idolatry of control and comfort and significance. He took your hate and your self-righteousness and your pride. He took all of the sin and death that is ours. And in exchange, he gives us life. And here's the wildest thing about this grace, if you dare to believe it. Because of Jesus's perfect obedience in the place of our disobedience, God the Father can now look at us as though we have obeyed perfectly. If we're believing in Jesus for life and salvation, there is a very real way in which the Father sees us under the banner of his son's perfect faithfulness. And that is now our right standing before God. And, oh, this is so good, it doesn't stop there. Jesus then gives us the Holy Spirit to now go obey in practice what we are in position before the Father. And now we can live out Jesus' perfect obedience. And this whole thing is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it is theologically and climactically why Nathan can look at David and say, the Lord has put away your sin. And what I love is that all of this rewrites the plot. Because of Jesus, we can flip the whole script Real obedience doesn't presume, but rather cherishes grace. Real obedience has God and his gospel as its ultimate standard and reference point. 
Now obedience in the small things can lead to obedience in the big things. Real obedience doesn't justify or accommodate sin and evil. It normalizes faithfulness. And Jesus alone reverses the curse of all of this because opposite of David, Jesus saw sin, he saw that it was evil, and he took it to himself at a tree to set us free. And that changes everything. And if you don't believe me, the New Testament writers, guess what they do? They still call David a man after God's own heart. And if you don't believe me, I saw my old pastor friend a few months ago in town. And I knew that him and his wife had worked through years of really hard healing and counseling and therapy. And when I saw him, I gave him and his wife a big hug and we talked for just a little bit. And then when they left and they literally turned their back and walked the other way, your boy cried because I absolutely knew that he wasn't letting his disobedience define him, but he was trusting in Jesus' gracious love as his decisive definition and purpose and hope. What I'm telling you, friends, is that this grace is as true as it is scandalous, as it is glorious. Fellowship Greenville, I got really, really good news for you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And our King Jesus has obeyed perfectly and he has conquered sin and death and he has infinite, infinite grace and mercy for you. And today I, I hope you're trusting him for real life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so, so much that you have given us your son, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father that you so loved the world that you gave us Christ. Thank you. Jesus, thank you that you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you have taken our place, that you are a great representative, that you're our great substitute. And thank you, Jesus, that you have given us of your Holy Spirit to now live out your perfect obedience. Holy Spirit, would you make us, please, Holy Spirit, this church, Fellowship Greenville, these people today, would you make us a humble and faithful and obedient people? Holy Spirit, make us like Jesus. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You're the best. Amen.